Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Mascaro is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and happy PGA Championship Week to all of you. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Oak Hill has in store for the players this week. Weather going to be a factor. They had frost delays at the practice round on Monday. They're looking at having another one on Thursday, and it's forecasted to be in the 40s on Sunday morning. Windy conditions could also be in the forecast. The rough there thick and lush, so it's going to be tough hacking it out of there. Premium on driving it straight and in the fairway. Now, Oak Hill has been the venue for several majors over the years, including three U.S. Opens, now four PGA Championships, plus a Ryder Cup, two U.S. Amateurs, and a couple of senior PGAs. Our good friend Sean McKeel won there back in 2003 with one of the most incredible second shots in a major championship on the 72nd hole, if you remember, hit it to two inches to defeat Chad Campbell. Jason Duffner won the PGA when it was last held there back in 2013. And another great friend of the show, Scott McCarron, he finished second to Ken Tanagawa in the 2019 Senior PGA. So the course has been good to some of our friends. We will certainly be talking a lot about the course tonight with the guys who have played there that are on the show with me tonight. And who are those guys? Well. First up, of course, is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, who's been there several times with Oak Hill being in upstate New York. He's going to be followed by a guy who has played it and taken several amazing photos of the course, and that's Evan Schiller. Go online to evanschillerphotography.com to take a look at the great pictures that Evan has posted of Oak Hill. Following him will be PGA Tour legend, a guy who's played in the 1968 U.S. Open and 1980 PGA Championship there at Oak Hill, and that's Bruce Devlin. And then we're going to round out tonight's show with former PGA Tour pro and one of the top orthopedic surgeons in our country, Bill Mallon. So, folks, it's going to be a lot of fun over the next 90 minutes or so. A lot of great knowledge coming your way. And as always, I want to thank each and every one of you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the Macklemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Berg and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, 
will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to macklemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus black grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me, just like he is every other week all season long, is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. With the hot weather and afternoon thunderstorms already a daily issue down there in Florida, Tom has moved indoors to club champion down in Naples, Florida. So go there and learn from the best. And you can do it indoors this summer with Tom in Naples. And if you can't get there for whatever reason, well, then download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of a golf swing through that app. You can find him online at TomPatrick.com or on Instagram at TomPatrickGolf. And like I always say, don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can watch over 300 free video lessons that are going to help you play your best golf this season. And we are certainly privileged to have him back with us again this week here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? Christy boy! <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. How are you, TP? Chrissy, I'm uh I'm in our home in Key West, Florida. Wow. I just come from just come from a friend's house where we made a little brick oven pizza and had a couple of margaritas. So you got me all primed up here. <laughs> um we spent That's the day out, we spent the day out on the boat on the water. It was spectacular. Wow. I am uh recharging my batteries to do battle for the summer season. Good for you, my friend. It doesn't seem like it could get any better. It's always good to be Tom Patrick, but even particularly now, this week. It's good It's good to be Tom Patrick married to Mrs. Patrick. What it really is. <laughs> that's what it really is. What it <laughs> exactly. God bless Denise. Exactly. Exactly. Tom, before we get into all the golf news of the week, when last we left you, you were about to do your annual marathon golf holes event to raise money for local charities. Update us on how many holes you played and how that went. Actually, Chris, it's the South Florida PGA Foundation, which has become a very um, special, dear thing to me. Uh, the, the foundation uh, embraces, I think, seven or eight different charities uh, to raise money uh, for different charities in the South Florida area, both on the East and West Coast. Uh, I've been doing it now. This is my seventh season doing it, and I do it in the form of a golf marathon where people pledge either buy the hole or a flat donation. And this year I played a mere 150 holes. Oh my, 150 holes. How long did it take? Well, we, we teed off at um, 7.15 a.m. And we wrapped it up at 6.15 p.m. My driver 
Meredith Schull, who's the assistant executive director of the South Florida PGA, is my driver every year. And and really, Chris, to be honest with you, we really do, we don't really rush. I mean, we just she drives, I get out and I hit it, and she drives, I get out and I hit it, and it, it it's really I don't feel rushed at all. And Meredith lives on the East Coast, where our headquarters is are located, and she has a couple of young children. She had to get back home. And I, I told them when we finished, I had I think I had nine more good holes in me, and and she, and she bailed out on me. Um, oh my. Yeah, so I, I think I, I'm going for 160 next year. I'm going for 160. So if anybody out there uh, feels charitable and feels like giving back to the game, it's a great way to give back. We uh, the, the foundation does tremendous work in the South Florida area for, like I said, seven or eight different charities, um, uh, a veterans charity, uh, a children's hospital, Habitat for Humanity. Uh, it goes on and on. It's, it's really, really special, and uh, I, I enjoy doing it. And, and and 150 holes, it's like, it's like half a day. It's only 12 hours, half a day. You know, it's, uh, it's not a big <laughs> How long was the hospital stay afterwards? When did you get no, out Thursday, no, I, Friday? I, 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 you know, what's really crazy about it, about, about a week before my my date to do this, I, I was scheduled every year, I, um, I, had, I had a hip pointer, and my left hip was killing me. And, and Meredith tried to get me to change the date and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, just uh, some some very good drugs and um, and a lot of perseverance and the Italian DNA and what we went. So we did fine. We did fine. All right. So, so let's change gears. I mean, kudos to you, by the way, for for all you're doing for charity and, and for the Thank game you. of golf. So that's a huge month. Thank you. It's PGA Championship week, Tom. And, and, and I hear the weather up in Rochester, New York this week is it's going to be a balmy 36. Wednesday morning. They had a frost delay on Monday for the practice round. May have one again on Thursday morning before they can actually get the tournament kicked off. The low on Sunday is forecasted to be 46. Boy, Tom, I'd hate, I'd hate to be the guys with the early tea time on Thursday. No, they, well, they just got a new shipment of copper tone in <laughs> and, and sunglasses and, 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 sun, and sun umbrellas. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, as a PGA member, there are certain things that my organization that is very dear to me does that just baffle me. And and when they had the schedule change or they even negotiated the schedule change, whoever thought it was a good idea to um, move the PGA championship to May in the Northeast, um, it, just, it, it just it just baffles me beyond beyond belief. I mean, you know, I, I understand that these venues are, are set contracts are signed years and years in advance for majors but once they made the schedule change why uh the powers to be didn't sit down with the powers to be at at oak hill and say guys this could be this could potentially could be a disaster i mean it it snowed it snowed in rochester four weeks ago um and not not only that but the amount of pressure you're putting on your staff um you're putting on your your green superintendent and, and and the possibility of an of an embarrassing situation to the host facility, which you never want to do, obviously, um, is enormous. So why not say to them, listen, why don't we why don't we trade this out for a later Ryder Cup or why don't we trade it out for some kind of special event or do something? But we you know, we can't take the risk. And and you know, by the way, I think in two years it's at Aronomic in Philly in May, which again could be could be dicey. You know, if you get a bad winter or you get a late, you get a late season storm or something, it, it just, it's just, um, I hope it, I hope it works out. 
I hope all is good. I hope everybody doesn't ha- nobody has any egg on their face, but um, there's some potential there. <laughs> well, to your point, right? I mean, I love Northeast golf. I mean, I love Michigan golf, but it would seem like if you're going to put a major in one of those cities or one of those golf courses, maybe a U.S. Open. I mean, it's not U.S. Open's been played there several times at Oak Hill. Seems like that would be a, a U.S. Open venue. Not a PGA Championship venue when it's in in early early parts of uh, of May. It just well, seems like that the thinking would be let let's let the Northeast and the Northern places have the have the U.S. Open. If we're going to play it in a colder weather one, let's play it a little later in the year. There are other places we can hold the PGA. Again, you're talking about two separate organizations: the PGA of America and the United States Golf Association, and not the PGA Tour in either case. So you're getting different different organizations vying for different venues. Um, and again, Chris, this all happened because of a cha- you know a change in schedule that was dictated pretty much by the PGA Tour, and you know PGA of America and the USGA and the PGA Tour don't always see eye to eye. Um, so you know somebody decided it was a good idea to put, you know put the PGA in May in the schedule, and the PGA of America agreed to it. Um, <laughs> again, baffles me, um, but. You know, and, and that ties into I know something else you and I talked about off the air about do I do I like the new schedule and do I like the majors all being played boom 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 right in a row? And I'm not a big fan of it. I I, I liked when they were you know I like when the Masters was in April, and you know June came along we we had the U.S. Open and then you know, July came along we went to the Open Championship overseas and we rounded out the season with the PGA Championship last in August. The, you know, to create some drama and, and extend the season, as you will. Um, so there's there's a lot of things I think that you know there, there's some holes in, in 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 the carpeting here. You know, and nobody <laughs> really. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we've really thought this through all the way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if it had been a really bad, bad, bad winter? Which, by the way, seventy miles away in Buffalo, we know what happened there this winter. Right. Okay. If that winter had been shifted seventy miles to the other direction to you know rochester and and if they had a bad storm this past week or so or a late storm what would be going on right now the you know the possibility was really there you know in the northeast so away from the weather let's talk about the golf course what do you think the keys are to winning up there at oak hill well oak hill is a tremendous golf course i mean it's well documented the championships have been played there in the past the scores have been shot and not shot at that venue. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's a Donald Ross original, which we, we have, and, you know, quite frankly, it's not really a Donald Ross original anymore because there's a lot of people who had their hands on it. Uh, most notably recently with Andrew Green, but, uh, it's a phenomenal golf course. It's a, it's a very, very, very good driving golf course, a par 70. It's going to play close to 7,400 yards. Just to give you a comparison about golf courses. Beth Page Black is a par 70 that played about 7,400 yards. And we know how tough that was. Um, this is a, uh, if, if not as good, a better driving golf course than Black possibly. Um, it's a very well-designed, very strategic golf course. And it looks like they've, they've got some serious uh, rough growing in. And, um, and you're not going to really be able to advance the golf ball very far out of that rough. So you're going to have to drive the ball in play. I think the key is getting the golf ball in play, and then, and then the redesign has has opened up some new pin positions, 
So if you've played there in the past, the major, you're not really seeing the same golf course. Uh, so it's going to be new to everybody, basically. And we know when guys see the golf course for the first time, it's kind of like that pitcher seeing the, the lineup for the first time. He does pretty good that first time around, but the second time around, they kind of figure him out. Well, these guys don't have a second time around in this new redesign. So this is going to be a first time situation for a lot of eyes on that golf course. I think it's going to hold up very well. Uh, and with those temperatures that you mentioned, um, it, it could be uh, it could be really interesting. I, I don't think, you know, if if it stays, the forecast stays the way it is, and the golf course plays the way it can play, I don't think you're going to see anybody get to double digits. So let's let's take all of this a, a step further because I took a peek at the uh, the tee times for Thursday morning. Mm-hmm. First group out: Sean McKeel, Stephen Alker, and Braden Static. So we got two guys from the Champions Tour that are uh, of the first three out on the golf course. Put, putting the older guys out first seems a little cruel to me, Tom. Well, Sean McKeel, who who actually won a PJ there um, and never won anything else, really. Um, uh, you know, the sacrificial lamb, if you will. And then Alker, who's a you know a great, great senior tour player and still has decent length. And I wouldn't be surprised if Alker, who's a grinder and a really fine striker of the golf ball, I wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't shock me if Alker made the cut. Um, but 7 a.m. on Thursday morning on that golf course in that temperature, uh, I'll take a pass on that. I'll, I'm going to stay home and stand, stand, stand to the covers, and maybe turn the TV on and watch it from my, from my Betty box. Let's switch gears a little bit. And the last time we heard from Rory McIlroy, he was taking a mental oh break following oh missing the cut at the Masters. And he's gone from finishing tied for second at the Arnold Palmer Invitational and finishing third at the match play to missing the cut at the players, missing the cut at the Masters, finishing 47th at Quail Hollow. Now, he's a member at Oak Hill and his wife is from Rochester, but do you think Rory can jumpstart it and get back and, and be a competitive player this week, find himself at the top of a leaderboard? Or is that too much to expect after his uh, latest run that's been a little less than great? That's a great question, Chris. I mean, you know, who knows? I Rory McIlroy to me is an enigma. I just don't understand Rory. Um, I don't understand some of the decisions he makes, and I don't understand how somebody as talented as he is, and he is so, so talented. Um, goes to these extreme peaks and valleys in his game. I mean, he's just like a roller coaster. I mean, uh, it's a great golf swing disguised as John Daly. Um, I, I I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how he how he how he just goes from one extreme to the other. I mean, you you would you look at him on the range hitting golf balls. You bet on him every every single week. I mean, that just is is as good a golf motion as you're ever going to see. And he obviously can hit all the. Sh- See, we've we've seen him putt good. We've seen him putt horrible. Um, it's just, it's just, you just, it's like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, I don't think the relevance of his wife being from there and him being a member has anything to do with anything. Uh, I think I saw an interview with him yesterday, and he really alluded to the fact that even though he's a member there, whatever that means, whether it's honorary, I don't know what the status is, but he hasn't played that many rounds of golf there outside tournament golf. Um, so I don't think that's an advantage at all. Uh, I quite frankly don't know who's going to show up as Rory, Rory McIlroy's body from week to week. 
Tom, speaking of, of mental health, when you and I were talking a few days ago, you shared a story about what solved your anger management issues on the <laughs> golf course, a, a video that I'd love to find somewhere on YouTube or anywhere else. How did Tom Patry once end up on the local news? Oh, you're going to do this, Mario. Okay. You, you, you got it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. So when I, in my playing days, and I can't remember whether it was the Iowa Open or the Sioux City Open. Now, for people listening out there, um, this is long before there was a corn ferry tour, a nationwide tour, Ben Hogan tour. Matter of fact, just before that. And you had to find these independent events to play in. And I, again, I can't remember if it was the Iowa Open or the Sioux City Open. It was one of those two. And those events were big time local events that people came out and supported it. And local high school kids caddied and the whole community got behind it. And the local news station came out. So t- t- young Tom Patrick had a bit of a temper. And, um, and, you know, we can't see ourselves. So I, I, had, I had an episode during the first round of the tournament um, that I thought nothing of, really, and, and uh, went on and finished the round. And that night I was in my room after dinner, and I, I turned on the local news, and I was kind of laying in bed reading. And the sports came on, the little sports came on, and they said, you know, today at the, I'll call it the Sioux City Open, there was, there was quite an event. And I looked up at the screen, and they had videoed me having this episode. And we'll just say that it wasn't pretty um, <laughs> at all. And, you know, you can't see yourself. So you don't, you don't, when you're making a complete ass out of yourself and you don't know what it looks like, you don't think anything of it. But when you see yourself on TV, <laughs> on a news broadcast, a sports broadcast, making a complete and utter buffoon of yourself, and it goes on for 30 seconds, and you're thinking, who else is watching this? Can I turn every TV set in America off right now? Please don't let anybody see this. So, of course, it goes off. And I think to myself, oh, my God, I can't believe that's what I look like. And, of course, the next day you go out to warm up for the second round and all your buddies are out there warming up for the second round. And they're like, hey, saw you on TV last night. Hey, (laughs) nice job. Nice job. And that instantly, instantly cured my anger management problems right there because it looked I looked like a complete and utter ass. and. And I tell that story to my juniors now when they have their little episodes at times. And sometimes during playing lessons, if I have a student, you know, either whether it's a junior or, or an adult having an episode, I'll get the, I'll get the iPhone out and I'll film them doing it. And then after the playing lesson ends, I'll say, Hey, I want to show you something. And, and they, they have the same reaction I had. They're horrified, you know, and they, you know, and if that doesn't solve your problem, I don't, I don't know what will, but I, I didn't, it wasn't, it was not a pretty, pretty picture of tom patry at all <laughs> you also learned a life lesson one year when you missed qualifying for the open championship at turnberry what happened there oh that was that's that you're, you're doing this all to me in one night huh? are <laughs> oh, you mad that my yankees are winning their game tonight what are you what are you doing that's a, that's actually a, a, a an incredibly sad story still every time i tell it now and because we're going back now I, what year was that open to Turnberry? What, what year was the first open to Turnberry? I got to think about this for a second. It had to be in 18 something. Stop, stop. <laughs> it, it was in the middle 80s somewhere. Anyway, anyway, so I I was playing in the final qualifying uh, for the Open Championship at a place called Glasgow Gale, which is not too far from Turnberry, where it was being held. And uh, 36 holes in one day. And the weather wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great either. It was a little dicey. 
And I remember playing, I played relatively well in the morning, a couple under, and the scores were not very low. And I went out in the afternoon, I was playing quite well. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you got to shoot a good score to get into this thing. There weren't that many spots available. And I got to the very last hole. And of course, back then, there's no scoreboards at a qualifying event. So you don't really know exactly you stand. You've seen the 18 hole scores when you finished your first 18, but you don't really know for sure. But I felt like I was really close. Um, I drove it right down the middle on 18. And, and uh, I remember I had a six iron into a green. And the green was kind of a di- diagonal green from front right to back left with a face bunker along the front of the green. And the pin was tucked over that bunker in the back left corner of the green. And I was under the impression through some poor mathematics that I thought I needed the birdie to qualify. And I had a yardage and I hit a shot and I hit it very, very well. I hit it right in the middle of the face. And I was kind of posing, thinking this thing was coming right down the flag stick. And the flag was just cut a yard or two over this bunker, really close. And I'm thinking I just just stuffed it in there, just flagged it. And the ball comes down and it plugs in the top lip of the bunker. Hmm. And, and you know, I, I felt like just the, the just the blood rush out of my body. We walked up there and it was it was pretty bad. I tried to hit it and it came back in the bunker. I knocked it out about five or six feet. And I missed it, made double. And I got in. And I didn't need birdie at all. I needed just bogey to qualify. Wow. And missed by a shot. And um, thank you for making me relive that, Chris. I really appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate that. That's that's like the year the Yankees lost the three-game lead to the Red Sox, what you just did to me. I will never forgive you for making me tell that story. And um, I hope everybody's enjoying that, including you. Uh, but but there will be repayment of that at some point in our in our in our, in our life together. No doubt. Tom, one of the awards that's given to local PGA professionals each year is the Bill Strasbaugh Award, which is designed to recognize the PGA professionals who, by their day-to-day efforts, have distinguished themselves by mentoring their peers and being a service to their local community. You actually had a relationship with Bill Strasbaugh. Talk about him. Yeah, actually, it's it's both a, it's both a section award and, and then a national. Um, and the first thing I'll tell you is, is it's a, it's an incredible award. It's a it's a very very prestigious award, and one of my dear friends, Jack Druga, has just won the national award, and it'll be presented to him in I believe November at Frisco, Texas, new headquarters. And I'm going to attend that presentation, that dinner. Um, so I'm I'm so proud of Jack and so happy for him. But Bill Strasbaugh was um, a mentor to me a friend to me, uh, a father figure to me, and a man that I spent a tremendous amount of time with. He was uh, the only professional in the history of the PGA of America that's won all four of our national awards, the Horton Smith Award, the Professional of the Year, the National Teacher of the Year, and then was presented the very first Bill Strasbaugh Award, which was named after him. And you know these sporting organizations don't generally create awards, Chris, while you're still alive. You're dead to do something like this. So the fact that they named an award after Bill while he was still alive speaks volumes about who he was and what we all thought of him. Um, but Bill, um, Bill mentored me in my teaching um, tremendously. He became very, very close. Um, he was a very unique individual. He had an incredible memory for events and happenings. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I was with him when, like, for example, at the PGA show where somebody would walk up to him and say, Bill, my name is. And he would interrupt him and say, your name is Chris Mascaro, Chris, and you were in my business school two class in 1968 in Kansas City. I believe your wife's name is Beverly and John and Jay are your two sons. How are they doing? They should be about college age right now. 
And the person would look at him like, what in the hell just happened there? And who is this guy? Is he from Mars? And I saw him do that. Chris, I saw him do that a hundred times with people. Um, just an incredible, incredible, I guess you call it photographic memory um, for, for dates, events, and people and happenings. Um, he was a very special man. He was very special to me. He uh, developed, developed a brain tumor and um, eventually died of that tumor. And a few weeks before he died, um, I called his wife, Dottie. He had, they'd been, he had been taken back to his home. And they knew it was terminal at that point. There wasn't much time left. I said, Dottie, I got to come. I got to come see Bill one more time. And, and Dottie said, well, Tom, he's not seen anybody. He's not even seen our own family right now. Um, I said, Dottie, please go ask him. I, I need to see him. You know, I need to come and see him one more time. And she went in to see him and she came back to the phone. She goes, you know, he wants to see you. I said, I'm going to drive down tomorrow. So I drove from, uh, from New York down to Maryland where he lived. And uh, they had they had moved the hospital bed into the home, and uh, Bill had lost his ability to speak at that point, uh, but was still was still as sharp as a knife, other than not being able to speak. And I got in bed and held him and, and talked to him for uh, close to two hours, and uh, he'd squeeze my hand and then as a recognition of what I was saying. And I left, and he he was dead in a couple of days. Um, but he was a uh, he was an incredible guy, um, meant the world to me. Jack, who won the award this year, is going to get presented to the award this year at our annual meeting. Uh, and I were both very close to him. As a matter of fact, when he retired from Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland, they started a, uh, a two-man pro-pro the year he retired to bring all his friends and admirers into playing his two-man pro-pro. And Jack and I won the first Bill Strasbar pro-pro that year at Columbia, uh, which, was, which was really special to both of us. Um, and we miss him every day. Now let's switch gears to a happier note. Um, as you know, my next guest is Evan Schiller. You guys have been great friends for, for many, many years. When I've looked at Evan's college career, everything I've seen are his days at the University of Miami. But rumor has it, that might not have been the first college that he ever attended. What's the story behind that? Evan, Evan is a very, very dear friend of mine. He was actually my first hire when I became director of instruction at Westchester Country Club. We traveled for a number of years together all over the world playing golf and all over this country playing golf and a hell of a player. But he had a he did have a, a little glitch in his college career. He originally went to school in New Orleans at a place called Tulane, the fabulous Green Wave. And um, and rumor has it that Evan had a little problem um, finding his way off Bourbon Street and into the classroom. <laughs> So they, they excused Evan and asked him to um, pack his bags and go home. Um, so he went from one school of higher learning, uh, Tulane, to another school of higher learning, as we all know, the University of Miami. Let's go from one party atmosphere to another. Let's go from, let's go from Bourbon Street to South Beach and, and hang out there. Um, but he's a good friend of mine. I love the guy to death. He, he's a real, I'm going to tell you what. One year playing, he, he forced, if people don't know what force spotting is, force spotting is a thing that's almost a thing of the past now, but we used to be able to play on Mondays um, to try to get into a tour event. It'd be about 160 guys, 150 guys, four spots. So you can imagine how competitive that was. It's so hard to do. Well, he force spotted four times in the same year, in that same year, qualified for the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. 
and won a regional tournament called the Westchester Open all in one year. So Evan Schiller, who is now one of the great golf photographers on the planet, uh, and I, I, I don't say that in a prejudiced way at all. It's just a fact. He is. Um, got a few of his works hanging in my office at home, and I, I look at him every day and love him. Um, was a hell of a player. Uh, one, one, a really beautiful golf swing and a really talented, talented ball striker. Um, and whenever I can give him a little bit of shit, I love giving it to him. <laughs> well, there also was an event, right? In Munich, Germany, when you guys were going through oh, boy, European you, tour qualifying. You, I shouldn't talk to you off the air too much. You remember too much. <laughs> we, um, my man, Evan Shilbo and I flew into uh, London, England. Uh, in a quick stopover for a couple of days on the way to European tour qualifying um, first stage or second. I can't remember if it was first stage or second stage. Anyway, the stage leading to the final, um, which was going to be in Valencia, Spain. And we hopped off the plane and we we're going to grab a rent-a-car. I, uh, I was getting the bags out of, a, I guess, a taxi probably at that point. I'm trying to remember how we did this. And he ran in to get the uh, the rent a car, and he came back out after a couple of minutes and said, "I said you get the car." He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "And we got a date tonight." A date tonight. He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "You and I are taking these two girls to work inside at the Hertz office out to dinner." I said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You know, we got to practice tomorrow." You know, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Long story short, we we go out to dinner with these two young ladies, and we decide on the way back from Valencia. We're going to uh, take them on a little trip to Munich, Germany. Um, long story short, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, we played the first round and played pretty well at the, a place called El Salar, which is hosted the Spanish Open, really good golf course. And we're both in position to qualify. But we've played so well, we're going to have these late tee times, and we're not going to make the flight we need to make to get back to London to get these two young ladies to get on the flight to Munich. So he, we, we don't know what we're going to do because you know this, this has become more important than the qualifying for the European tour. <laughs> so, so he says, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'm going to John Paramore, who just passed away, who was the lead official for the European tour, a wonderful guy just passed away not very long ago. I said, I'm going to go talk to Paramore and tell him that, there's something, there's a family illness at home and we've got to get out of here early tomorrow. Can we please go off first? We're going to try to convince the lead official for the European tour to put two of the leaders off early so we can make a flight back to America, which is totally bogus. <laughs> so I go speak to, I go speak to John Paramore and he puts us off first. Wow. Instead of last. And we race around the golf course way too quickly. And and as as Tom's luck would have it, Evan qualifies by a shot by shooting some kind of crappy second round score and just sneaks in. And I miss qualifying by a shot to go to the final. And now I get on the plane. And I'm totally pissed off. We fly back to London. We're supposed to fly to, to Munich. We get in this fight with these two young ladies. We end up circling around because Munich is fogged in. We land somewhere else. They're going to put us up in a hotel. And, of course, we think we're going to do pretty well with these two young ladies. And they inform us that they're going to stay in a room together and we're going to stay in a room together. and They're not going to stay with us. Now I'm getting none of that either. 
<laughs> and and I get in this room with Evan and I say, I am going to kill you now. And now I'm going to kill you because I just was qualifying and and I'm coming up empty on this female situation. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. Brutal. Yeah. yeah, not not good. Not good. Tom didn't do well. Um, Tom nev- never really did well in that situation. He made some bad decisions. And also, was uh, another rumor, wasn't it your idea for him to do this whole photography thing? Is that is that a true statement or is, or is that embellished? Actually, you know, again, Evan might have a different spin on this whole thing. But when we first went to Westchester, uh, we, of course, hosted the Buick Classic. And Evan, Evan had a hobby that wherever we went to play golf, he would take some pictures. And I thought he, I thought he took some incredibly wonderful pictures, as we now now know he in fact did. Um, but he thought it was a hobby, and 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 he and he'd take you know landscapes, but he also take golf course pictures, you know, different places we played, and other places he played on different trips he made too. And I said in the first year, Westchef, I said, Ev, you know what? We should get a couple of these pictures blown up and framed really nicely. And put him in the shop during the Buick. I think we can sell him. And I went to our director of golf, John Kennedy, and said, "John, do you mind if Evan does this?" You know. And John said, "No, not at all. He can do it. And whatever, whatever we sell him for, the money is his." So I said, "Let's go down. Why don't you go down to Rye Frame? We had a friend that owned a framing store, a framing shop in in Rye, where Westchester is, and get it, get four or five of these things framed up, and we'll put them on easels in the shop." And he said to me. You know, what are we going to sell them for? So I'm going to put 375 on it because you're out of your mind. It is, you know, you're crazy. Nobody, this is not any. Anyway, we picked out five pictures. They were fabulous. I thought he had them blown up. We had them framed. We put them in the shop. And the, the Monday or Tuesday of the Buick Classic Week, he goes out to do something, you know, one of the merchandise tents and goes back in. And he goes, Where are the pictures? I said, They're all sold already. Go get more. And that started the whole thing. And I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for my percentage check 20 some 30 years later. And you know what I got? Zippo. Nothing. Nothing. Not no, no, no commission. I got, no, nothing. I got, I got nothing in Valencia, Spain. I got nothing in Munich, Germany. I got nothing. Wow. I got nada. Nada. And it, thank you, University of Miami. <laughs> I'll have to get Evan's thoughts on, on all of this. Oh, stuff. sure. I'm sure. I'm sure that I'm sure that the, the story will be very different. Very different. <laughs> Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, following you on your website and on social media as well. Chris, all the regular places, you know, www.tompatry.com, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. um, And thank you very much for mentioning the South Florida PGA Foundation and the 150 Halls. It's near and dear to my heart. That's awesome. Those those charities uh, so need everybody's support and help. And Maybe we can talk about a preemie doing it next year and get some people uh, to listen to the show involved too. Um, but more importantly, Chris, thank you for everything you do. Every week is special that, that I get to come on with you and, and the guests are great. And, and, and you do so much for this game uh, from, from that seat you sit in there and we really appreciate it. And please give Mr. Schiller my very best. That son of a, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, I love him and tell him I'll see him this summer. I'm going to be up in his neck of the woods for two weeks in July. We'll do that. TP, you're the best, my friend. I'm already looking forward to when we catch up in a couple of weeks. Stay safe. We'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. See you, Tom. That is the great Tom Patry again at Tom Patry Golf on Instagram. TomPatry.com is his website. And be sure 
to subscribe to that YouTube channel. So much great content out there for you to to go out and play your best golf this year. And they don't come better than that guy. We are so lucky that he is a part of this show every other week. I just love him. Okay, before I open up the mic and get to my next guest, Evan Schiller, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arcos Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. All right, now back and next on the tee with me to probably set the record straight is Evan Schiller. For those of you not familiar with Evan's work as a photographer, you need to go check out his website, evanschillerphotography.com. And I mean this sincerely, not just because he's a guest on the show, but because it's true. And on top of being a great guy, it's the reason I've asked him to come back on the show for a third time now. And just like Tom Patry said, he is the best photographer on the planet. You go back into his golf career, you know, the, the Tulane thing, we don't, we're not quite sure about. Uh, we'll get the story on that, but he played his college golf at the University of Miami back in 1981-82. He helped the team to a third place finish in the Andy Bean Classic, a fourth place finish in the Furman Invitational, and another fourth place finish in the Southeast Invitational. And in the all or nothing tournament at Athens Country Club, they finished fifth and earned a berth, uh, berth in the National Championship Tournament, which was held that year at Pinehurst. They ended up finishing 10th. They had another strong team in 83, and Evan helped them to finish second in the FIU Sunshine Invitational. He qualified to play in events on the PGA Tour from 1984 to 1988, including the 1986 U.S. Open at Shinnecock. He has now photographed over 600 championship courses worldwide, and I'm looking at his calendar hanging right here on the wall in my studio, and I am honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Evan, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it very so much. You, you got to set the record straight. Is, is all that stuff Tom Patrick said true? It's exactly how he said. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, as far as he knows, as far as he knows. <laughs> 
<laughs> no doubt. So tell me about the the beginning. You know, tell us about how how the the whole photography thing came together and uh, and why you're now the best golf photographer on the planet. Wow. Um, actually, um, Tom was with me. We um, we were out in California. We played the California Open, and um, it was at uh, the Mission Hills, the Dinah Shore course, and at the mountain course at La Quinta Resort and Club. And I, somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know, you guys should go down the street. There's a new course that just opened up. Um, you should go check it out. It turns out it was it's the state it's a stadium course at PGA West. It, there was nothing nothing out there. I mean, if you saw it then and now, it's like night and day. now it's completely built up. When we went out there, it was 1986. Go play the stadium course. There was a few model homes there, but the rest was a golf course routed through what was essentially sand. Um. The uh, Pete Dye, I mean, Pro Shop was in a trailer anyway. So we come to the, the ninth hole. We went out and played early because, you know, it was like middle of the day. It was 120 degrees. And we come to the ninth hole, and I look down this hole, and it's a slight little dog leg right uh, around this water. And it has a uh, a bunker running almost the length of the hole. And then there's uh, railroad ties between the sand and the water, you know, Pete ties, railroad ties. Um, and then there's this mountain in the background and the water was really calm and there was a perfect reflection of the mountain and the water. In fact, the hole is called reflection. So I stop and I look at this and, you know, we didn't have cell phones at the time where you could snap a photo uh, and I didn't have a camera with me, but it was about that moment that I decided, you know, I got to go home and get a camera and just start taking it with me, you know, to these tournaments or courses I play. So just for kicks, I started, I got a camera, started taking it with me. I would take the photos and hang them up on my wall. They were like all around my room. And I'd give them away to friends. And that's kind of how it got started. And then, you know, as Tom said, several years later, uh, I want to say it was, you know, five or six years later, I went to go work with Tom at Westchester. And, you know, like that part, he he was accurate about that. He did say, you know, we should put some photos up in the pro shop. And they did sell. I mean, I I never thought it would happen. Uh, so that was my actually, I think my first sale of any kind of photography was those photos that we sold at uh, at Westchester. And then I did it at a few more clubs. And that's essentially how it got started and evan like i mentioned in your intro each year i buy your calendar have it hanging on the wall here at my yeah. studio with 600 plus championship courses that you photograph how do you decide which which pictures you're going to put in the calendar each year <laughs> uh i honestly it's some of the more recent photos you know a lot of them have come you know or from the last year or so the courses i've shot um, but there's always one that, uh, I look at and go, okay, that one's the cover. Uh, but yeah, they're usually photos that I've taken over the last year or so. 
don't know, maybe maybe a little bit further back, but generally, yeah, the more recent ones. I don't know. I, I don't have any method. I just look and say, hey, that's nice. I like that. I like to have, you know, a variety from different places. Um, but there's no real rhyme or reason other than ones that I like or, you know, such that there's a at least a, um, a difference of, you know, the locations and courses and from around the country. And Evan, as I look at the picture for this month, it's appropriately the 13th hole at Oak Hill side of this week's PGA Championship, right. a, a beautiful Donald Ross and Andrew Green design. What yeah. can we all look forward to since you've been there and you photographed the holes? What can we look forward to seeing this week at Oak Hill? Wow. Um, well, you know, my when I photographed it, oh, it was two years ago. Um, my first impression when I walked on the property is was this is a big golf course. Uh, kind of a similar feel like when I, you know, when I remember the first time I walked on the wing foot, I went, whoa, this is a big golf course. Um, and it is. It's a big boy golf course. Andrew did an amazing job restoring it. It had kind of over the years. First of all, the course is going to look a lot different than it did when they played their 10 year, I think 10 years ago, they played in 2013. It's going to look a lot different now. He did a wonderful job restoring it to the old, to the Donald Ross, as close as he could to the Donald Ross look and feel design. I know he worked off of some aerials and some old photos, um, you know, but the bunkering is definitely Ross bunkering now and the greens were restored. And yeah, he brought back the character of the golf course. It, I thought it was, Fabulous. Really, really good. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays. And, you know, I, I, I happened to look at the weather and I think on Thursday morning, I saw 30s. Right. Thursday morning. So, I mean, they might even have frost on Thursday morning. Um, you know, I think that high was only going to be about 54. So that baby's going to play long. <laughs> <laughs> The picture you took is of the 13th hole. They got a flagpole with an American flag flying there on the hole, the, the Hill of Fame. Yep. Talk about that 13th hole. I think it measures out over 600. Like, I want to say like 630 if they play it from the back tee. Um, you know, I and there's that creek running across. Unless they move the tee up, I don't think anybody's, you know, I think in 2013, I think guys are flying it over that creek. Um, I may be mistaken, but I don't, unless they move the T up, um, I don't think anybody's going over that Creek this year. Uh, be interesting to see where they play it from, you know, whether they play it from 632 or they move it around. And also the, you know, the second part of the, the shot is uphill to, you know, essentially what's like a punch bowl green. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful hole really, really. And it's tight up there by the green. With those, and, with those trees up on the right. Just so everyone's aware, and you point this out in the calendar, Oak Hill is the only club to have hosted now four PGA championships, the Ryder Cup, three U.S. Opens, two U.S. Amateurs, the U.S. Senior Open, and two Senior PGA Championships. Can you feel that rich major history blowing in the Oaks when you walk around the grounds of that golf course and in the clubhouse? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I don't know, there's, there's certain places you walk, 
into, I mean, I remember when I was at Canterbury in Ohio and, you know, they haven't had uh, a tour, a PGA tour major there in a while, but you just, you walk inside as you do at Oak Hill, uh, you know, you got the hall of the hill of fame, you know, there's plaques, there's photos, there's memorabilia. Yeah. You really get a sense of the history of this place when you're walking around the property. Um, you know, it, it also, you know, helps knowing when you walk in there what's you know what's transpired i mean i remember watching i remember watching the um pga in 1980 when nicholas won yeah um yeah so yeah it's definitely uh there's a lot of history yeah you definitely feel especially when you walk in the clubhouse around the grounds um you know i remember walking around there and saying hey i remember what happened on this hole what happened on this hole so uh, and I, I I'm standing. I remember I was standing on 18th green and trying to envision. I remember that shot that Sean McKeel hit in there on Sunday. Um, so yeah, it just kind of brought back memories as I was walking around that place for you know basically I was there for almost a week. And Evan, you talk about Jack. The the picture you chose for the calendar for the month of June is Baltus Roll, another course with a, a long history of hosting major championships right. a little south of, of Oak Hill in, in Springfield, New Jersey. And I yep. didn't know this until I was doing the research, but it's actually named after a man, Baltus Roll, yep. or a, a guy who owned the farm on that land once upon a time. And it's a another great uh, place where Jack won a couple of U.S. Opens. I know you're a Tillinghast fan. What was it like photographing that course? Um, well, you know, Jack won the U.S. Wait, he won the U.S. Open there the same year he won the PGA. At right. Oak Hill, 1980. Because um, I remember I remember being there. I was there in 1980 on Sunday. And the uh, being on the 18th hole, he was playing with Aoki. And you couldn't get near the green. There was so many people. So I remember my brother and I were there and we were crawling under people's legs. <laughs> you know, it was kids crawl. I remember crawling through people's legs and I got up to the green and Jack was putting right at me. You know, that, wow. that putty made in that last one look coming right at me. And I'm, you know, I'm holding up his club and I, and then they had a big sign up on the clubhouse, you know, Jack is back because he hadn't won a major. I think it was in five, 1977. I think it was five years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about been, right. Yeah. Um, Baltus Raw, when you walk around the clubhouse, it's like walking through a museum. It's because they have so much memorabilia there. It's, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a clubhouse like it with all the photos and memorabilia. I mean, everywhere you go, especially, you know, like in the men's locker room and the grid, and it just, amazing it really is amazing all the stuff they have there uh it's really cool just to watch to walk around and look at it and read it and the old i mean really old photos some of the newer ones um and it's uh each time i've gone there i think i've gone there three times now to shoot the course you know most recently it was a couple of years ago because you know gil hands just did a big renovation to the lower um restored the tilling house <laughs> restored it to a true tilling house um and i've stayed in the clubhouse because they have these rooms upstairs which are really nice um so that's always kind of nice you know i get up in the morning walk downstairs get in a cart and go out and shoot the course wow yeah yeah 
just another cool place. And that, that clubhouse is amazing. Evan, it's got to be very challenging to try to capture the whole in the way that you want to capture it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you're dealing with weather and cloud cover and position of trees and where is the sun and other obstacles, which means everything has to be in perfect sync for you to get the picture that I'm guessing you have envisioned in your mind. Talk about the patience that you have to have for all of that stuff to line up. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that, and I remember my, I remember my father saying this, he said, and it wasn't necessarily about photography, but it was about other things. He goes, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't necessarily have control over. And in in this case, you know, it's the weather for me, because what I do is so reliant on the weather but i really have no control over that he goes but what you do have control over is how prepared you are so one of the things that i do whenever i get to a golf course is i scout it pretty thoroughly and by what i do is you know i'll drive around the course um and i have this little app called the sun seeker so i'll drive every hole and I generally will walk up on the tee, maybe out in the fairway, um, just kind of getting a sense of where I might want to shoot from. But also I use my sun seeker and it tells you where the sun's going to be at, you know, at every any moment of the day. In other words, so I I can hold it up in the air. And it'll show me where the sun is at 630 a.m., you know, at 645 a.m., you know, 7 a.m. And, you know, where it is in the sky. So I know I get a sense of like, okay, well, this whole, you know, be good. in the mo- I think it'll be good in the morning because the sun's going to be over there. Maybe, maybe not so great in the afternoon. Whereas another hole or two could be really good in the afternoon. So I make my little notes. So I get a, I got a kind of a sense of where I want to go and when, when I want to go there. You know, whether it's first thing right when the sun comes up on one hole. And then another hole, it might be a half an hour later. Um, and then, you know, it's, so I, I get this little plan together where where I want to shoot, let's say, in the morning, which holes I want to shoot. Um, but that's always subject to change because you get there and it may not look the way you thought it looked. So you got to, you know, pivot or you know adjust. And then there's always, the, you know, there's always a chance that the weather may not agree. So you just keep showing up. <laughs> Really, you show you just keep showing up, and uh, more times than not, it works out. You know, and sometimes you show up and it doesn't. You know, I can think of a. Um, I did a shoot up in uh, at Sand Valley a number of years ago. I think it was like four years ago, and I literally rained for four straight days. Oh my! Yeah, and I sat around the clubhouse eating a lot of um, calamari. <laughs> it's really good <laughs> and i went to talk to the um the kaisers actually um and the gm there i said well, what do you want to they, they i said what do you want to do i said well if you want i can hang out for you know i can hang around for another three or four days because i got nothing else i go great so i mean literally it was just, it just kept raining i think it was it might have rained for four and a half almost five days so on the fifth day it was raining and I was ready to 
pack it in. And I mean, I didn't have to go far because I was staying right there at the, at the lodge. And I, I looked out on the horizon and I could see a little break in the clouds. And, you know, but it was getting near sunset. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to put my stuff in the cart. I'll cover it. And it was still raining. So I got in the cart and I drove out to Mammoth Dunes, to the 10th hole in Mammoth Dunes. And through the rain, I had all my stuff covered up. I had my, you know, I had my rain suit on. And I sat there literally and in the rain and waited. And the clouds, the sky started to break. And the sun literally came out for 30 seconds and then it went, then it went away. But in that 30 seconds, I was able to get a few shots of the 10th hole. Wow. And then I moved over to the 13th hole and the same thing happened. And those were that shot of the, the shots I got out of the 10th hole are some of the best I ever got anywhere. And literally, you know, had I not driven out in the rain and just said, you know what, I'm going to go out there and just wait. And if I get some, I mean, because on the, yeah, on the off chance the sun comes out, it could be really amazing. And it was for 30 seconds and I got this amazing shot of the 10th hole because uh, the sun came out. I mean, it, I, people say it opens, looks like, doesn't even look like a photo, it looks like a painting. So I just, I've learned from that. And I've also learned from times where I decided to pack it in and I shouldn't have, <laughs> where I thought, you know, the weather was, was going to stay cloudy or the weather was going to stay crummy. And it switched on a dime and all of a sudden it got really nice. And I had decided I'm going to leave or I'm going to go in my car. And I regretted it. So, there was a moment I just said, you know what? I am never going to do that again. Even if I have to go out there and get skunked. <laughs> Evan, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they buy some of your amazing photographs and, and then follow you, whether it's on your website or it's on social media? Uh, well, they can go to my website, evanschillerphotography.com. There's a, a uh, an online store with, I don't know how many prints there are there now, probably over a thousand to choose from, from probably over 60 golf, 60 courses, maybe more. Uh, photography.com. Uh, you can find me on social media, you know, Instagram. I'm probably the most active on Instagram. You know, just if you type in my name or Evan Schiller photography, you can find me, uh, also LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and, um, TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> all of them. Evan, all it's the always above. it's always a joy having you as part of the show. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. In between now and then, my friend, all the best. And I look forward to all the different things that you're going to come up with this year. And obviously looking forward to the calendar for next year when that yeah. becomes available. Because like I say, I've got it fatter for the last several years here in my studio since I had the privilege of meeting you through Tom a few yeah. years ago. So yeah. I, I, I just treasure all of that. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. And actually, you know, remember I said, I usually know there's a photo I take and I usually know it's going to be the cover. Well, I got that one in February. Is that right? Yeah. Can we get a, a glimpse under the tent? Now you're teasing me. Now I got to wait. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I can wait. tell you, I can tell you what it is, but you have to wait. Okay. That's okay. I'll wait, it's, but I want to know where it is. Uh, it's of the 18th hole at stream of the red course at stream song. Oh, okay. Um, well, it was, it was my first morning. It was my first time at Stream Song. It was my first morning there. 
and the whole course was enveloped in fog. I mean, just completely socked in with fog. And I was sitting by the 18th tee, drone on the drone on the ground, and the fog starts to break, but only breaks. It's still kind of hovering around the ground, but it only breaks on the 18th hole and on the driving range. The rest of the course is still in the fog because the 18th hole is a little bit higher up than the rest of the rest of the course, up towards the green. So the rest of the course was completely socked in, as were the surroundings. So I got the drone up and I took a picture of the 18th hole, and it literally looks with the fog and the, it looks like the the hole is on the water because wow. of all the fog. You can't see the rest of the course. You see some towers from the old um, mines. The um, oh god, who's still in the place? Anyway, I'm blanking. There you see some of these old towers from the old mines in the distance, but other than that, it's just completely covered with fog. And wow. you see the you see the hole, so it looks like it's on the water. Spectacular. Can't yeah. wait to see it. Yeah, it's a cool shot. Anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate having me on, what you do. It's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care, Evan. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. All right, Chris. Bye. Thanks. See you, Evan. That is a great Evan Schiller, folks. You've got to see his prints to believe it. I mean, the shots that he has and uh, the hundreds of courses he has them from are all just absolutely breathtaking, and they're all perfect. And the lighting is perfect. The, the, the way that he's got it shaped, the angles that he takes it from are all perfect. It's tremendous stuff. It's, it's just, you know, when, when you see his, his photos and you're trying to think about which, which one do I want to have framed in the house, you can't pick one. Because there's dozens of them that we all want in our homes and in our offices. You got to go online to see it. EvanSchillerPhotography.com is his website. And hopefully we get the privilege of having Evan talk more about the things that he's doing this year and the images he's captured back on the show a little bit later on this summer. My next guest is Bruce Devlin. Before I get to Bruce, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit Sconey.com and use code NXTONT20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's Sconey.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. 
just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right, now back in next on the tee with me is PGA Tour legend Bruce Devlin. Let me remind you about Bruce's background. He was born in Armandale, Australia. He won the 1959 Australian Amateur Championship, turned pro in 1961, joined the PGA Tour in 1962, and he won eight times out on the tour between 1964 and 1972. He also won once out on the Champions Tour. He is one of only four players to make a double eagle at the Masters. He holds a four-wood on the par 5 eighth hole in 1967. He played in 61 majors on the PGA Tour, made the cut 51 of those times, and had 16 top 10 finishes. He had 31 professional wins in all, including eight on the PGA Tour, and like I say, one out on the Champions Tour. His last win on the PGA Tour came at the 1983 New Zealand Shell Open at the age of 46. He was 57 when he beat Dave Eichelberger in a playoff to win the FPH Healthcare Classic out on the Champions Tour. He retired from competitive golf in 1998 to focus on his golf course design business. He's designed over 150 courses around the world. His courses have hosted several professional golf tournaments on all tours. He's also one of the all-time great broadcasters. He worked for NBC and ESPN, and I am beyond thrilled to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bruce, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Bruce, we're on the heels of the Byron Nelson Classic. It was great to see Jason Day not only get back in the winner's circle, but do it for a second time there. You also won that event back in 1969. It was only the second year that it was named in honor of Mr. Nelson. You won by a stroke over Frank Beard and fellow countryman Bruce Crampton. What do you remember about winning that week? Oh, it was uh, obviously a great thrill, especially with uh, Byron's name on it. And then for for quite a, quite a lot of years, uh, the champions used to have a dinner there, sort of like the uh, Augusta Masters dinner on Tuesday night. And uh, that went on for, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 or 16 years. And then for whatever reason, it's uh, it sort of stopped. So um, I'm sure a lot of the guys would have uh, loved to have had the opportunity that I had to sit and talk with the great Byron Nelson and uh, uh Obviously, when he's golf time, it was a lot of fun. And, Bruce, we're at uh, the PGA Championship week. It's being played at, at Oak Hill. You played at Oak Hill in the 1968 U.S. Open. You finished tied for ninth that week. You played there again in 1980 at the PGA that Jack won. What do you remember about competing at Oak Hill? <laughs> it's a difficult damn golf course is what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, uh, you know, it was, uh, it is a difficult golf course, but I think it's a very fair golf course. And I, I actually would, uh, I would like to see what the redo of it, uh, looks like. I, I hear and read a lot of nice things about it. So, uh, I'll be watching this week. Uh, I'd like to, like to see the changes that were made. And, uh, we've got a hell of a field there too. So from what you remember about the golf course, what do you think it's going to take to win there this week? Oh, you know something, uh, Chris, to be quite honest with you, I don't understand the golf game today. Uh, you know, when guys hit it 330 yards off the tee and hit eight irons 210 yards, I mean, I 
I can't get my head around that because I, I never saw it. I don't understand it. So I wouldn't have any idea what it would take to win there. Uh, I mean, these guys are shooting. Doesn't matter what sort of golf course they go to, I guess. It, you know, they it's a 20 under week. You know, I don't think that'll happen there, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised what the score was, to be honest with you. So let's take that a step further. Do you think the idea that model local rule of potentially rolling the golf ball back at the pro level, is that the right thing to do? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think the greatest player that we ever had, uh, certainly through my, my period was Nicholas. And he now for 30 years has been saying that the golf ball is going too far and, you know, it's affecting a lot of things. Uh, making some of the old great golf courses uh, unplayable for these guys. They can't hit drivers off a lot of the tees. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's totally different, but I think the bifurcation of it, uh, it may work. Uh, golf is the only sport, professional sport that I know of, where you can go to the place of uh, competition and you can bring your own golf clubs and you can bring your own golf ball. And if you think about football and baseball and basketball, uh, you know, they're all, you know, they're all controlled. They're centrally controlled. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe this will help. I don't know. You know, you look at a club like Marion, uh, these guys today, I doubt if they'd hit their driver three times during the round. Is that right? Sure. Well, you know, they hit three woods, 300 yards. So, you know, what the hell do you need a driver for? <laughs> yeah. Let's expand upon that a little bit. You wrote a book back in 1970 titled Play Like the Devil, where you gave tips for how to cut strokes off our scores. Is the advice that you gave back then any different from what you'd give now? No, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, there are certain basic fundamentals that, uh, that you need to have to play the game, you know, on, on a professional level. And I think they've, they've pretty much stayed the same, uh, over the years. Uh, I mean, you look at a guy like, uh, I'm going to use an Aussie here, but you look at a guy like Adam Scott, who's sort of been in the, uh, the, the back end of my era. And now he's playing in this, you know, high length area and. He's, he's been able to, uh, he's been able to go along with the way the golf ball and the clubs have, uh, have improved and he's still competitive today. So I, I think, you know, you couldn't find a better golf swing than what he's got. And, and it's obviously, uh, it's stood the test of time. Bruce, in that year of 1970, you won the Bob Hope Classic, which was a five round golf tournament at the time. You shoot 66 in the final round to beat Larry Ziegler by four strokes. What was it like not only winning that golf tournament, but then all the stars and the people there always were around the Bob Hope Classic? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of them around then, but yeah, something that happened after the golf tournament was probably one of the nicest things that ever happened to me. Uh, I'm not sure you uh, you know, but uh, I mean, a lot of people knew that I I played in the Bing Crosby for 10 years with Dean Martin. You know, the all time great yes. of, in history. 
And uh, I was in the press room after the golf tournament, after victory, and I got a phone call from him and he said, I've sent a plane down for you and your wife, Gloria. You're coming to the opening of my show at the, uh, you know, uh, you know I've, lot, I've lost the name of the facility that he was opening at, but uh, we, got to, we got to get on a plane and go up to Vegas and have dinner with him and then sat right in front of the stage uh, when he opened the show. So that was a, that was a pretty neat way to finish uh, a victory at the, at the Bob Hope. I'd say it was. And, Bruce, also that year, you win the Cleveland Open. The final day, you guys played 36 holes because of weather earlier in the week. You go out the morning round, you shoot 66. You come back in the afternoon, you shoot 64. It was the lowest score ever on the PGA Tour for rounds played on the same day. And afterwards, you said it was something like Houdini getting out of the casket. It was one of the best putting uh, rounds I ever had. Yeah, you remember well, about that? Yeah, well, to shoot, you know, to shoot those sort of scores, you know, things have got to be going well. And uh, uh, I, I would say, generally speaking, Chris, I was a pretty good putter, but uh, that particular day, I mean, it looked like a bucket. So... Uh, I made a lot of putts, and uh, that's a pretty low score to shoot in one day. But, yeah, it was fun. Bob Van Hagee was a wonderful golf course architect back in the day. Talk about the impact that he had on your career. Uh, he was, uh, well, maybe, the, maybe the, uh, the early part prior to him and I getting together might be the interesting part because I was a member of a golf club in Sydney. I played pennant for them as an amateur called the the uh, Lakes Golf Club. And after I turned pro, the president of the club called me and he said, uh, Bruce, I'm not sure whether you understand what's happened, but the state of New South Wales is going to put a freeway through the golf course. And I want you to, when you go to America this year, please you know, try and look at some golf courses that are being constructed and uh, come back and make a recommendation to us you know, for a guy that would come here and rebuild the Lakes Golf Club, knowing that there's a freeway that's going to go through it. Well, I looked at a lot of golf courses under construction. I never talked to one of the architects. Uh, I went back and made a recommendation that they hire uh, Bob Von Agy, who was a Dick Wilson protege. And uh, that's how it all started. Uh, when he got over there, he said, <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure why I'm here, but thank you for, you know, for um, recommending my name. And one thing led to another, and we ended up forming a, a company together, and we built probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 125 golf courses together around the country and actually around the world. So it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a fairly long relationship. And then, you know, like everything, it sort of, it dissipated towards the end, and I ended up going out by myself, and um, he went his way too. So, And then I might also tell you that uh, he was married to one of the first LPGA gals that put the tour together who actually passed away today. Marlene oh, Hagee no. died today. Wow. That's so a little postscript for you, Chris. Yeah. Bruce, just a couple more before I let you go. In the 1967 Masters, you become one of only four players to make an albatross on the par five eighth hole. 
you hold forward from 248 yards out. Talk about that shot. Yeah, well, that was, uh, I had my daddy with me too that year and uh, I hit it in the right rough on the right-hand side of eight and had a perfect lie. And I knew the only, they just rebuilt the green. So I knew there was only one way to get into it. And that was about a 30 degree angle to where I was. So I hit about a 15 or 18 yard hook and it just sort of, Pitch just sure the green run up on the green and went in the hole like a putt. So uh, that was uh, that was quite a thrill. My dad got to see it happen too. That which was a lot of fun. No doubt, Bruce. You once said, "I'm not physically strong enough, nor do I have the mental stamina to play week after week on the tour. If I stayed out on the tour regularly, they have to put me in a straitjacket." <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. Uh, <laughs> I've I've always uh, you know I've always enjoyed doing other things uh, you know if you look at my career you know I was a plumber early and then got into golf and then TV and architecture and now doing the podcast you know you know doing all the history all the great players that have ever played this game it's been a it's been a long and a and a uh, you know a lot of different turns in the career it's been a lot of fun though. Before I let you go, you mentioned the podcast. It's called For the Good of the Game. You and Mike Gonzalez do a fantastic job, as you said, talking to all the great legends that our game has had. Talk about the podcast and where people can find it. Yeah, they can just go to uh, For the Good of the Game and just, you know, just a couple of ideas about what's going on. We've, we have, uh, we've interviewed 74 of the World Golf Hall of Fame and major champions, both men and women. Uh, we've, we've interviewed, uh, 68 major winners, 35 world golf hall of fame winners. And these players have won 2,455 golf tournaments wow. between them. and, uh, PGA LPGA wins, uh, you know, nearly 1300 wins. So it's been a, it's, you know, uh, Mike Gonzalez come up with the idea. I wasn't quite sure about it. And he said, you know, you've got a good relationship with all the guys. And, uh, well, we got started and we're into our third year now. And it's, uh, we, uh, yeah, we finished with, uh, we did Justin Leonard today, just early this morning. So, uh, he was our 74th guy that will guy or gal that we interviewed. So it's wow. been a lot of fun. Bruce, how can they, you, you mentioned where they can find it, but where can they uh, follow you on social media? Because you're a wonderful follow as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, I guess, uh, you know, I'm not too good at this, but I, Facebook, I guess I'm at Bruce Devlin 13. And uh, I don't know what the hell I am on, uh, <laughs> on Twitter, but, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. And, and, to be quite honest with you, I probably wouldn't be on any of them except for Mike Gonzalez. He said, you know, if we're going to promote for the good of the game, you better get on Facebook and Twitter. So <laughs> that's why, that's why I got on. Well, Bruce, it's been a huge thrill having you back as part of the show again tonight. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you a little bit later on this year. You're such a joy to spend time with. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I, I appreciate what you do. You've got a great, uh, a great show, and, uh, and thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Take care, Bruce. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay, buddy. Thanks a lot. See you, Bruce. 
That is the great Bruce Devlin. And you, as you can hear, what a wonderful man, a great player, a great broadcaster. I used to love listening to him broadcast golf tournaments. He made every tournament better because of his insights and his broadcasting skills. They were second to none. His podcast, again, For the Good of the Game, F-O-R-E. So For the Good of the Game is where you can uh, listen to his show. It's on just about every major podcasting uh, network out there or application. So wherever you get your podcast content, you're probably going to be able to find For the Good of the Game on there as well. Mike Gonzalez's uh, co-host does a great job there, a great team. So be sure to go check it out. Again, ForTheGoodOfTheGame.com is the website and uh, available out there just about everywhere you get your uh, podcasting content. Hopefully, like I say, we get the privilege of catching up with Bruce just a little bit later on this summer. Before I get to my next guest, Bill Mallon, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to adelgolf.com. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at Squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Bill Mallon. Bill is from Patterson, New Jersey. He grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, and later moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina. His father was a competitive cyclist. Bill attended Duke University and played on the men's golf team, where he lettered from 1970 to 1973. He helped them to top six finishes all four years in the ACC championship, and he was named a Ping GCAA All-American in 1972 and 73 and he was twice voted to the Outstanding College Athletes of America. Individually, he finished tied for sixth in the 1972 ACC Championship and jumped to fourth in 1973. He won 43 amateur championships, including the Massachusetts and New England amateur championships twice and one mid-Atlantic title. He also won the New England Open in back-to-back years of 1976 and 77. Bill went through Q School and earned his tour card in 1975, and he played on the PGA Tour through 1979. His best finish was a tied for fifth at the 1977 Tucson Open, and he played in the 1977 U.S. Open at Southern Hills. Following his PGA Tour career, he went back to Duke and earned his medical degree, and he has become one of the most outstanding orthopedic surgeons in our country, and he spent several years as the medical editor for Golf Digest. He is an Olympic historian, and he's written several books on the topic and co-founded 
the International Society of Olympic Historians, and I'm very honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Bill, I want to start by going back to your start in the game of golf. Like I mentioned in your intro, your father was a competitive cyclist. How'd you get into golf? Well, I, I was a competitive cyclist, too, and we lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, and I raced in uh, Massachusetts in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I actually was the Massachusetts junior champion one year, although th- there were only four people in the race. It wasn't much of a victory. And uh, then for the ninth grade, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and there was no cycling there. Nobody did it in 1965. Um, that was there was just nothing for me to do. And we were there. We moved it early in the summer. So I had a couple months before school started. So dad asked me if I'd like to go maybe try and play golf. And they took me to the golf course when both my parents worked. And I started playing golf in Raleigh that summer. Played all summer and I got pretty good pretty quick. So I kept playing golf. Bill, I read a story when you were at Duke that you and one of your dorm mates once drove around the campus drive circle 500 times. The last 10 laps, you actually drove backwards. What's behind that story? Uh, I believe there was uh, some alcohol behind that story, <laughs> as, as I remember. Uh, you know, we were just in the dorm having a few beers and just decided to do a crazy thing. I mean, you shouldn't drive when you've been drinking. I, I, I don't drink very much. So I wasn't drunk, but... Uh, it's also pretty hard to get in an accident driving around the traffic circle that's about about 50 feet wide. <laughs> we decided we would try to set some sort of record, which I think we did. Bill, several of the players I've talked with that played when you did, um, they talk about getting through Q school and that being one of the most pressure-packed tournaments that they ever played in. What was it like for you getting through Q school? It was one of the most pressure-packed tournaments <laughs> I ever played in. Uh, you know, one of the great things that happened to me at Q School was, uh, and this is in the days of only, you know, three television channels, 1975. The night before my first round, I'm, you know, I'm scared to death and, you know, very nervous. And my favorite James Bond movie came on TV, and I got to watch it. And that really relaxed me, which was You Only Live Twice with Sean Connery. And uh, I watched that. and. Uh, that relaxed me, and I shot 69 the first day, and I was always within the cut. I, I think that year it was 25, the top 25 made it. It was at Disney World, and I was never outside of the cut after that first round. And um, I, I remember the, the last round especially, I was so nervous. I didn't play very well in the front. I shot 38, and uh, right then I think I was right on the border of the the cut line and um 10 was a short par five and i hit a four iron second shot on the green about 25 feet and i left the 25 footer five feet short and then i left the five footer six inches short and i just started laughing because i said well i can't choke any worse than that (laughs) And, and that kind of relaxed me for the rest of the round in one sense and then in another sense I was still so nervous that I just said, just go ahead and just swing as hard as you can on everything. And I just sort of went on autopilot and I played great from there. Um, and I think I shot three under in the last eight holes and I, I made it by, I think, about three shots to spare. Bill, 1976 at the Tallahassee Open, 
You finished tied for 63rd. You took home a cool $140 for that tournament that week. Was that the first time you made the cut on a PGA Tour event? Um, no. Um, my, my first tournament on the PGA Tour uh, was, was the Crosby at Pebble Beach and the other courses, um, which was actually the first tournament I, I, I qualified for. And I made the cut that week. It's a three-round cut. And um, I uh, I played the fourth round. I had a great fourth round pairing. They they put us out in foursomes because of the amateur pairs, and I was with three other guys that had not uh, that their amateurs didn't make the cut. So I played the last round with Frank Beard, who was a former number one money winner, uh, Bobby Nichols, a former PGA champion, and Steve Melnick, who was a former U.S. amateur champion. I had a great pairing for my first fourth round on the PGA tour, but I made my first cut, but I. For a tournament I got in. Wow. Um, that year in June, 76 in June at the Western Open, you have one of the best finishes that you had on tour. You finished six, only three strokes behind winner Al Geiberger. And it must have been a brutal final round because when I look at the scores, Bob Dixon, who was leading going into the final round, he shoots 80. There were 10 rounds of 80 or worse, including Lenny Watkins, who shot 86. You go out and shoot 74. What do you remember about that tournament, that final round? Well, I played with uh, one of my close friends on tour that week, um, Joe Porter. Um, Joe ended up finishing second um, behind Guy Berger for the week. And, um, uh, you know, I I think I was about in fifth place going into the last round, but I, I was never, I never really had a shot to win it in the last round, even though I shot 74. I was always about three shots off the lead. I would have had to, you know, just go crazy on the last few holes, and I didn't. Um, and you know, I just played solid that round. I didn't, um, I, I didn't do anything, you know, super uh, great or anything, and I didn't do anything stupid. I, I, I just again played solid. The thing I remember most about the week was in the second round. Um, I, I don't can't remember what I shot in the first round, but in the second round I shot 40 on the front nine. This is on Butler National, which back then was the hardest course on tour. So I shot 40 on the front nine in the second round, and I'm kind of like on the verge if I don't play well the back nine, I'm going to miss the cut. And then I shot 30 on the back nine, which someone told me was the course record for the back nine, and that ended up with a 70, and that that was what put me up near the leaders at that point. And like I said in your intro, you played in the 1977 U.S. Open at Southern Hills. The heat that year was off the charts. Hubert Green wins the tournament that week, but dealt with death threats during the final round. Were you aware of the death threats and the things that were going on? And what do you remember about that week? Well, I remember that week very well. Um, mainly, I don't know if you know this. Um, I got married uh, the Saturday before that U.S. Open. So that was oh my. Um, and. Uh, I had told my wife, you know, if I qualify for the open, we'll play the open and, if, and then we'll have a honeymoon later. And if I don't, we'll go on a honeymoon somewhere. So our honeymoon was, you know, people say, where's your honeymoon? I go, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which never <laughs> doesn't sound like a real great honeymoon spot, but it was brutally hot. Um, I, I didn't wear a glove and, uh, I, um, on real hot days, sometimes I wore, uh, like tennis wristbands. Uh, to keep my hands a little drier and that week it was so hot and um, I was I always sweated a lot anyway in high school they voted me most likely to break a sweat so uh, <laughs> uh, what I did was I soaked my 
tennis wristband in water to keep my wrists and hands cool, to keep my, my hands a little drier when I was playing. The one thing I remember, um, on, I can't remember if this was a Thursday or Friday, but you know, you always play in the morning one day and the afternoon the next. And on the day I played in the morning, I'm leaving for the course about 6.30 or 7. And there was a, a time temperature sign in, in the bank in back of our hotel. And uh, as I got up at 7 o'clock and drove there, the temperature was already 82 degrees. Wow. It was pretty hot that week. So, Bill, after graduating from Duke with a degree in math and physics and the success that you had, those four years out on the PGA Tour, including being inside the top 100 money leaders twice, why'd you decide to leave the tour and go back to Duke to get your medical degree? You know, I was in the top 100 money winners my first two years, 1976 and 77, and everyone always looks at what they make now and thinks, oh, well, you were making a ton of money. My official money in 1977 was about $24,000. Um, so it's a little different than today. and. You know, I made some money off the tour um, with a few little endorsements and some pro-ams and other local tournaments I played. But, you know, I probably made no more in 77 than about $60,000. And it costs money to play the tour. You know, nobody's paying for it except yourself. And then at the end of 77 and then into 78 and 79, I got the driver yips. I, I couldn't hit a fairway to save my life. And I only kept my card for 79 because Dean Beeman um, realized I had done pretty well the first two years. And he he gave me an extent, a one-year extension, and I kept the card for 79. But I made very few cuts those last few years. I think I only made one or two cuts each year. Um, and you know, I just I had to do something different. There just wasn't any money out there unless you were near the top. And not only wasn't I near the top, I, I, mean, I was near the bottom now. Um, and I had to do something to make a living. And uh, my wife and I talked about it and talked about medical school and I decided to go back. Talk about that decision to go back to school. You majored in math and physics the first time around. What got you to go back to medical school and why orthopedic surgery? Well, I had a shoulder surgery myself uh, in 75, actually only about seven months before I went to Houston. And I'd sort of become interested in it. And when I was looking to do something else, I went back to the surgeon who operated on me. And I asked him if I could spend a little time with him and watch some surgery. And I, I spent a couple of days in his office and watched a couple of surgeries and became interested in it. And I knew it was a you know pretty good way to make a living. I didn't really realize at the time how long it takes to get to be an orthopedic surgeon with everything. But, uh, um, you know, my, I had a background in math and physics. So. I had good science, so I think I, I knew I could handle the science of medical school. That wasn't a problem for me. But I I had never been a pre-med uh, at all. I'd never taken any of the standard pre-med courses other than what they require in physics. So I had to go back to school for a year to get into medical school, which I did at Northern Illinois University, which was near my wife's parents' home. We lived, them, lived with them for about 10 months, and uh, I took courses there. You've contributed your medical knowledge to Golf Digest for many years. Talk about marrying your golf knowledge with your medical knowledge to help us understand what's going on in our golf swing. I haven't been the editor at Golf Digest now for about 10 or 15 years. I did that from 87 to about 2008 or 9. 
I wrote a column for them for about 15 years called Ask the Doctor, um, where people wrote in questions and I, I gave answers to what they could do. And I also, uh, I was a co-author on one book um, uh, called Medicine from Tea to Green, in which three of us were co-editors of the book and talking about medical problems in golf and how you deal with them and things like that. So that was one way. And then I wrote another one, and that was more of a medical textbook type of thing. But the other one I wrote was more of a popular book, um, which actually I never even thought about doing that. But a, a book agent actually tracked me down and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. I said, yeah, sure. So, uh, And that one was called The Golf Doctor. Um, and we uh, wrote that. And, uh, again, talking about golf injuries and the golf swing, how you can adjust your golf swing to play with injuries and, and various other aspects of the medical problems you see in golf. And, you know, over the years, I, I wrote a number of journal articles on golf injuries and various things about them. Not, not a ton. My subspecialty in orthopedics was shoulder surgery and shoulder and elbow surgery. Um, so I wrote more papers on that than uh, simply on golf. But I did write a, a series of about five or six articles when I was a resident, actually, with one of the attending surgeons at Duke um, on playing golf with hip replacements and knee replacements. And those articles have been pretty well uh, received. They've been quoted a lot and uh, referenced in other articles in the literature over the years. And actually, gosh, it's at least 10 years, it might be 15 years now, at, at a meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, we had a symposium on playing golf with uh, hip and knee replacements. Uh, and the symposium was me, uh, Jimmy Andrews, the renowned sports doctor, Jack Nicholas, the renowned golfer, and uh, then two other uh, uh, surgeons, primarily hip and knee arthroplasty, John Callahan and Ben Bierbaum. And, um, you know, so those are just some of the ways I've you know, tried to contribute to um, you know, the medical knowledge of uh, golf. And Bill, you weighed in recently about when you think Tiger is going to be able to play again. I think you said it would be six months to a year from now before he'd probably be able to get back out there. Talk about why. Well, um, first of all, it's at least six months. Uh, six months is when he can maybe start hitting balls, I think. Um, he had a, a, a fusion in his foot, a um, thing called a subtalar fusion. Which two bones in the back of the foot just underneath your ankle joint and um, you know that has to fuse together they have to heal first and during that time he can't be putting a lot of weight on it for at least several weeks that how long he stays off it exactly uh, depends on his surgeon's uh, advice and you know what he uh, thinks he needs to stay off it and then he gradually has to you know start putting more and more weight on it and walking you know without a you know, he might be using a cane for a while, but right now he's probably using a rolling walker or something like that, or he'll use crutches until he's able to put weight on it. So all that's going to delay him just getting back to walking, much less swinging a golf club. And so it'll be at least six months before he can even hit balls. I, I, I don't, you know, he, he last played at the Masters in uh, you know, like the second week of April. I think the earliest we'll see him back is the next Masters. I'd be surprised if he plays before that. The only possibility before that to me maybe 
like uh, the father's son or something like that, where we could ride a cart, maybe just hit some shots. Uh, you know, not a full full scale event. It's also on the ground, but but he's going to be out for a while. So, what do you think the long term impact on his golf swing is going to be? How effective can he be, even when he's healed? You know, getting back out on the golf course and and trying to play tournament golf. Well, he's never going to be the Tiger of two thousand. Um, I don't. I don't think he's ever even going to be the Tiger of two thousand fifteen again. Um, you know, the limiting factor for him in the few tournaments he's played since the accident, um, which I think was twenty twenty one, has has been his ability to walk. Um, not so much his golf swing. I think that's still going to be a big limiting factor, how well he can walk. Um, a subtalar fusion, which is the type of fusion he had in the back of his foot, allows you to walk pretty well. And, and Tiger has been limited with his walking by the amount of pain he had in his uh, foot because of the arthritis he developed from the accident. And the fusion should alleviate most of that pain, but it's not a panacea. It doesn't make your uh, foot normal. Um, you know, all doctors and all orthopedists, when they're seeing patients over their years, they sort of develop pet phrases and sayings that they say to patients. And one of the ones that I always said to people was, you know, they'd say, can you make my shoulder normal? And I'd say, you know, I'm pretty good at this surgery, but I'm not as good as the guy that made your shoulder in the first place. And it's the same for Tiger's foot. I mean, that, that fusion works pretty well. And the guy who did it for him is a well-known foot and ankle surgeon, but he's not as good as the guy that made Tiger's foot and ankle in the first place. So Tiger's foot and ankle are never going to be normal, um, and he's never going to walk 100% normal. It's his right uh, foot that has been impacted by this, and that's one thing that helps him because the right foot and ankle don't take as much stress during a golf swing as the left foot and ankle do. Where you, as you come into impact at higher speed, higher forces, higher torques, you know, you roll over onto your left ankle as you go through impact and then you follow through. Really on your golf swing, you need to, you know, you're sort of on your right foot, just stable during the backswing. And on the downswing and into impact, really all you do is raise up on the toe. You don't, you push off a little, but not that much. And um, so that, that will help them. I think you'll be able to swing okay. I just don't know how. He'll be able to walk a golf course for four rounds well enough to be competitive. Bill, just a couple more before I let you go. And you posted a picture of you with Jeff Burry, who was inducted into the Kansas Golf Hall of Fame. And more importantly than that, Rick Werner, who you mentioned, dated Cheryl Ladd in high school. Got to hear that story. Well, Rick and Jeff and I, uh, before I got on tour, I worked at a golf club in Vero Beach, Florida in the winters. Uh, while I played amateur tournaments in the summer, which is after Duke. And uh, the three of us were roommates uh, and basically working as assistant pros at the course. And Rick was from South Dakota. His nickname is Sodak, called him that, because none of us had ever met anybody from South Dakota before, all of us East Coast people. And he's an absolutely great guy. He's from Huron, South Dakota. And then in the late 70s, you know, uh, Charlie's Angels came out with Cheryl Ladd. And one night I'm watching YouTube and She's on Johnny Carson, and he's talking to her, and, and he goes, well, you know, where'd you grow up? And she says, well, I grew up in Huron, South Dakota. Well, Rick's the same age as I am. And I looked at Cheryl Ladd, and I go, she looks about my age. So 
so next time I talked to him, I said, hey, you know Cheryl Land? He goes, she's my high school girlfriend. And he goes, you mean Cheryl Jean Stoppelmore? Which was, that's apparently her original name. And then she became Sherry Moore. And then they, and then she got married and became Cheryl Ladd. So yeah, Rick dated uh, Cheryl Ladd a little bit in high school. Um, and that was a big thing for all of us to know that. <laughs> Bill, you're a wonderful follow on Twitter. Let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with you on social media. Well, I only do Twitter. I, I did do Facebook, uh, but I'm, I, I think I'm kicked out now um, because I, Somebody hacked my Facebook account and uh, I had to close it because of that. And I can't get back in because I still have the same email address and they won't let me back into that email. So I, I, I do Twitter and it's at Bam Bam, like the Flintstones Bam Bam, uh, at Bam Bam 1729 is my Twitter account. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of this show. I, I hope we get the privilege of having you back on. Again, sometime it was a lot of fun having you here. I know we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg of all the great stories that you've had over the course of, of your career, whether it was in golf or, or as an orthopedic surgeon. I hope we get the privilege of hearing more of those a little bit later on. Well, Chris, thanks for having me on. I hope I get to do it again, too. Appreciate it. Take care, Bill. Stay safe. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay. Take care. You, too. Thanks. That is Bill Mallon, folks. And I, and I tell you, from a wonderful college career, again, 43 amateur championships, Bill won, to spending some time out on the PGA Tour and now one of the best orthopedic surgeons that our country has to offer. Great insights from all of that, from college to the PGA Tour, and then getting some ideas about Tiger Woods and, and what he can expect, uh, how long that healing is going to take, and then where he goes after that. So the expertise from Bill is uh, fantastic, and I'm glad we got to spend some time with him. And uh, like I say, hopefully we get that privilege again soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Evan Schiller, Bruce Devlin, and Bill Mallon for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are 2013 Senior Open Champion and good friend Mark Wiebe will be back with us, as will Dr. Bob Jones IV. Always a treat to get to spend some time with Doc. Following him will be one of the top 50 LPGA instructors, Kelly Stenzel. And then we'll round things out with another good friend and the host of Rappers Don't Golf and new author now, Tucker Booth. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. You can find this show available as a podcast just about everywhere. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Player.fm, and Good Pods. And my sincere thanks to those folks for making Next on the Tee one of their recommended podcasts. Download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. And most of all, my thanks to all of you. You guys are the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.